There is one truth, one basic truth, that every truth you can read about in the Bible is built upon. One truth that you must be confronted by and willing to embrace, you must even sense in your heart, before you can even receive the gospel and become a Christian. One truth that if you aren't confronted by it and you aren't willing to embrace it, the words of the Bible either won't make sense and won't register to you, or even worse, we could wind up like the Pharisees in the Gospels or so many others through history who read the Bible and think they understand it, but do not. And I can't wait to tell you what that one truth is today. If you've joined us in our journey as a church in reading through the Bible this year, then you'll be on day three today. And yesterday, you would have read from Acts chapter 2, one of my personal, personal favorite chapters in the whole Bible, where we find the point of the Old Testament and the New Testament put in just one verse, one verse that summarizes Peter's sermon as he gets up on the day of Pentecost and proclaims the truth to Jews who have gathered from all nations. We look today at the book of Acts, chapter 2, altogether fitting that we would start our journey through the Bible with the most basic truth with the one thing that everything in the book is built upon, with the message of the Old and New Testaments. Peter has stood up on the day of Pentecost, just after Jesus has risen up into heaven and promised an outpouring of the Spirit. They have seen there the Spirit come down in miraculous tongues of fire, and everybody's, some are confused and some are amazed. Peter stands up, tells them what is going on, and this is the last sentence of his sermon. Acts chapter 2, verse 36. In the Spirit of God, the apostle says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. The words of the Lord. Through these words, God is confronting us with the reality that we must face and be willing to accept if we are to understand the message of the Bible and if we are to come to Jesus to receive forgiveness. Something I love about the apostles' preaching as you read it through the book of Acts is that it is so bold and so clear. Sometimes things that they say can be hard to understand, but if you read an extended sermon of a chapter or a half a chapter or so that they preach, the point will be clear. And the details may be tough, but the point will be clear, clear and bold. Sort of like when you wake up in the morning and it's still dark outside and at some point you have to flip on the first light switch or the first lamp and that first bulb of the day just, you can't miss it, right? It just shocks you. Well, it's bold and it's clear. In the same way, the points that the apostles make, they are bold like that first light bulb in the morning. They're clear 
like that first light bulb in the morning. Peter makes his point very clear in the verse that I just read. But it's interesting that he doesn't start out with the point of his sermon. No, he builds up to it over time. As we look at the broader chapter in the book of Acts, as I said a moment ago, the day of Pentecost has come. Jesus has just risen up into heaven. He told his disciples to wait until they receive power from the Holy Spirit before they began their work. And so they're just waiting. Well, then they're all gathered there at Pentecost. All these Jews from all over the world have been scattered. They all, preach, they all speak different languages now. They live very differently now. They're trying, most of them, to follow the Lord. But it's difficult when you're scattered like this. They've all gathered like this. And all of a sudden, a great and mighty sound comes. And fire, tongues of fire, come down on individual people and rest on them. And many signs and wonders are performed. And everybody is amazed. And all the people start speaking in their own languages. But they understand each other. It's just amazing. And some people are looking around in awe and wonder, and others are watching and they're saying, what have those people had to drink? It's only morning and they're already drunk. And so Peter gets up and he sets the record straight. They're not drunk. Instead, something so much more important than they would ever guess is going on. He starts in verse 17, verses 17 to 21, quoting the prophet Joel. Now the people who were hearing him, they took the Old Testament prophets very seriously. And along with the prophets, they waited for the day when God's rescuer would come. They would call him the Messiah or the Christ or the Holy One or the Anointed One. They're longing for him to come. Peter knew this about them, so he used several passages in the Old Testament to show that this day was pivotal in human history and in God's plan for the earth. So he starts with the prophet Joel, and he shows in verses 17 and 18 that the signs they had just seen that day show that the day of the Lord is at hand. And in verses 19 and 20, signs they had seen recently, and some believe we'll see on the last day as well, show that the day of the Lord is at hand. As Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. The day of the Lord is here. And as Joel's words end in verse 21, it's coming to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. He's saying the Spirit of God is being poured out upon people for the day of the Lord is here. Then he moves on. He quotes David next from Psalm 16. He does this in verses 25 through 28. David is speaking of resurrection. And he's saying it in the first person, right? right? My heart will be glad. My tongue rejoiced. My flesh dwells in hope. You won't abandon my soul to Hades. You won't let your Holy One see corruption. Basically, I know that I'm going to rise from the dead. But he can't be talking about himself because David still sits in his grave in Jerusalem. Peter points that out. He says, no, actually what happened He says, I saw it, many others saw it, some of you even bear witness to it. This Jesus that you have heard about and some have seen, he has risen from the dead. Now David said the one that rose from that dead is the Holy One, 
He says this in verse 27, capital H, holy, capital O, one, the holy one, that long-awaited Messiah. We know it's him when he rises from the dead. And he says, hey, we got signs coming from the heavens. We've got Jesus rising from the dead and many witnessing to it. Something incredible is going on here. Then he moves to quoting David again. In verses 34 and 35, he quotes Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. He's saying that this Holy One is Lord of all. And they have enough before them to see that that Holy One is Jesus, the one that they conspired against, the one that they crucified is the Holy One they were waiting for and the Lord of all creation. All of this is building to the final stroke, the final laying down of the hammer, which Peter says in verse 36, our text for today, the message of the whole Bible, the truth we have to be confronted by before we can believe the gospel. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. The message of the Old and New Testaments is that Jesus is Lord and Jesus is Christ. The message that you must be confronted with before you can turn, come to Jesus, receive forgiveness, and become truly a Christian is that Jesus is Lord and Jesus is Christ. The message that you must be confronted by before you can truly understand any of the teachings of this book is that Jesus is Lord and Jesus is Christ. This Jesus we crucified. God has made him both Lord and Christ. So what does it mean to be Lord? And what does it mean to be Christ? If we're going to understand the Bible, we've got to understand those two words. Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Christ. That's the thrust of the whole thing. Okay, so what do they mean? What are they? Well, the word Lord is used for anyone who has great authority over someone else. It's also, in the Old Testament, the name that God calls himself, the Lord. And so when they say the Lord or him being made Lord like this, <clears throat> they are referring to Yahweh, Jehovah, the God of the Old Testament, to say that Jesus is God. <clears throat> This is to say that he is master over all the universe, owner of all of the universe, the giver of life, the taker of life, the one that has authority over you, body and soul, the one who has the right to tell every creature on earth, here is how I want to be worshiped, and here is how I want you to live. 
That is what it means to be Lord. Who is this Lord? It is Jesus, this man of Nazareth, God in the flesh, who died and who rose again. To say that he's Lord is to say that he is master and owner of all the universe, including over you. Christ is one of the words they used for this deliverer and rescuer that they were longing for. The faithful people of God in the Old Testament, they knew that they were desperate. They knew that God's purposes could not be accomplished by them and their work. They knew that they were pitifully sinful before God, that they needed redemption. They knew that their enemies had so much power over them and they were just waiting. To be faithful in the Old Testament was just to wait for this promised great deliverer to come. He was called the Holy One, and he was going to come. He was called the Anointed One. He was going to come. He was called the Deliverer. He was going to come. The Redeemer, the Messiah, the Christ was going to come. So for Peter to say that he is Christ is to say that he is the long-awaited Deliverer that the Old Testament was pointing toward. So then to say that Jesus is Lord and Christ is to say that he is owner and master of all of the universe and that he is the deliverer and rescuer that all of our souls long for. To see Jesus as Lord and as Christ, this is to receive and understand the very message of the Holy Bible. But notice something here. And many times in the scriptures, this is proclaimed as a comforting truth. And for the faithful people of God, it is a comforting truth that he's Lord and Christ. I wonder how many of you in your hearts are voicing amens as I say this because you're glad to hear it. But it is for many a truth that we must be confronted with. And to truly grasp it is, feels just like running into a brick wall, totally gets your attention. It is loud, clear, and bold, just like that bright first light switch that you flip on in the morning that sends a shock through you when you first see it in the dark. It's a truth we must be confronted with, and Peter says it here in a confrontational manner. He doesn't say God made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you worship. He says this Jesus who you crucified. For them, and for all of those who resist the Lord, who do not walk in his ways, who are found to be sinners before God, it's a terrifying message that we have to come to terms with. This Jesus that we don't like, this Jesus that we sin against, this Jesus that we work against and rail against, he is Lord and master of the universe. And he is our only hope for deliverance. That is why the people respond the way they do in verses 37 and 38. It says, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. It's just a way of saying that it affected them deeply 
And in this case, painfully, it felt like a jolt of bad electricity going through them. They were cut to the heart, and they asked Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what do we do? This is a moment that could put terror and panic into our souls. The one that I've been working against is Lord of the universe. What do I do? We cry out, what do we do? And Peter has an answer for them. Repent. That means turn from all of that. Turn from that working against him and that hatred of him that you had before. Repent. Turn from it. Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. Be baptized in his name. Identify with him now. For the forgiveness of your sins and to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So only when we have been confronted by the truth that Jesus is Lord are we then seeking the gospel. Only then are our hearts truly plowed and ready to receive the seed of the good news, as these men were that day when they asked, Brothers, what shall we do? This is amazing to me, and I think it should be amazing to almost any of us who live in the Baptist church today. The point of Peter's message is not the gospel. He doesn't even preach the gospel in his message. No, the point of his message is the truth they must first grasp in order to be prepared to receive the gospel. His preaching gets them ready so that they are crying out, asking, what do we do? And only then does he give them the path of repentance, faith in Jesus, being baptized in the name of Jesus. The deepest truth in the Bible, the one that even the gospel itself is built on, is that Jesus is Lord and Jesus is Christ. That is the message we all must be confronted with today if we're going to live rightly before God. For some, this is important because there are many faiths out there, many religions that are in some ways based on the Bible but are not based on the gospel. Right, Judaism is pre- based on the Hebrew Bible, which we call today the Old Testament. Islam is based on the Bible and then the Quran, which they hold higher than that. The Jehovah's Witnesses have their version of the Bible that they have altered and changed. Uh, the Mormons have the Bible and then they have one more book. None of these faiths are built on the good news, on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Even what we might call the religion of nominal Christianity, that is, calling yourself a Christian, culturally being a Christian-type person, having some loose or maybe even certain beliefs about God, but not being confronted with Jesus' lordship of your failure to obey and worship him and your need for forgiveness that's found in Jesus. Even this can be based on traditionalism and on the word interpreted wrongly without the good news of Jesus or the lordship of Jesus. If you come from any of these faiths, uh, nonchalant or cultural Christianity, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, from Islam, from the Muslims, I want to confront you with a truth today, my friend. The truth I want to confront you with is that this Jesus, who claims to be the Son of God, and maybe you have taught that there is only one God named Allah and he has no son. Or maybe you have taught that he was just a prophet. Or maybe like some of these religions, you have taught that he was the son of God, but not God. 
Or maybe you believe that he was a great man, but not the Lord and master of the universe. This Jesus, who you're not willing to worship as Lord and God, this Jesus who you're not willing to build your life around his teachings, that Jesus, he is the appointed one that is owner and master of all the universe, Lord, and your only hope for deliverance, Christ. This Jesus that you work against, God has made him both Lord and Christ. Now, if you're willing to be confronted with that, then perhaps you will cry out like these men did that day, brothers, what shall we do? And the word to you is the same as what Peter says, turn from those views, those false views of who he is, worship and acknowledge him as Lord by being baptized in his name, in the name of Jesus Christ. Turn from it, be baptized, trust in him to receive forgiveness for all the years when you have worked against him. And then receive the promised Holy Spirit as they did on that day. For others, it may be the exact opposite. There's a sort of religion today that really is, you could think of it as kind of anti-Bible, right? There's, there are many who loosely at least understand the teachings of the Bible, some of them at least, but don't like them. Maybe that's you today. Maybe you have heard some of the Bible's teachings about family, about what manhood is and what womanhood is, and you felt that that was just too rigid and not free enough for you, and you don't really like it. Maybe you've heard the Bible's teachings about what marriage is and how sex is to be done, and you find that restrictive and you don't like it. Maybe you've heard other teachings and you think this sounds oppressive and I do not like it. I, I like the church. I like the Bible. I like this Christianity thing, kind of, but I don't like a lot of these rules. Or maybe there are many today who see the whole book, the whole religion, the whole thing as just a tool to oppress others. It's just a wicked thing that we need to rid the world of. If that is you, I want to confront you with the same truth this morning. The one who made us male and female, the one who made marriage and said, this is how you do it, the one who made all of these rules you don't like, the one who wrote this book that maybe you don't like, I want you to see today, friend, that he is Lord of the universe. And he is your only hope for deliverance from this fading body of death. God has made him, God the Father, has made him both Lord and Christ. Now, as you hear that, you're either going to rail against it, and maybe you have already closed the window that this message is on, or perhaps you will cry out like the men did that day, what are we to do? I am cut to the heart. What do I do? I have been working my whole life against the Lord of the universe. What do I do? And the answer is the same. Turn from working against him. Be baptized in his name as a sign that you belong to him now, you identify with him now, 
and receive in worship of him forgiveness and the gift of his spirit with you all the time. Lastly, there are many of us who, hopefully many people hearing this message, those of you that are part of Calvary, part of our church, who rejoice in the word of God enough that you have resolved to read it with us this year. As you do that, what we have talked about today is the thing that you must grasp for any page of the Bible to truly make sense. Church, if we read this book without sensing that Jesus is Lord of all the universe and that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, so much of it isn't going to make sense. We're either going to be confused by it or we're going to misunderstand it and think that we have it right. As you read, you must keep the sense in your heart that Jesus is Lord and Jesus is long-awaited Messiah. Right now, I'm reading with my children through the book of Exodus in the mornings, and we're getting to the plagues, which on one hand are amazing to read, and on the other hand, really tough to fathom. I mean, this, this old man, who is at this point 80 years old, with presumably a, a long beard and a staff, comes into Egypt, the capital city, he throws the staff down, it turns into a snake, and proceeds to bring all sorts of plagues upon the livestock of Egypt, upon the people of Egypt, upon their water supply, and eventually taking even their very firstborn sons from them. If this weren't the Bible, if this were just like a fairy tale, that guy would be the bad guy. Who gets away with taking life from all of the firstborn children in an entire nation. Why is that okay? That's not going to make sense if you don't have a deep sense in your heart that the Lord, Yahweh, Jesus, the one doing this, is owner and master of all the universe, is the giver of life, and the one who has the right to take life. Yes, it would be wrong for any person to do those things, any one person to just walk in and decide that's what they were going to do to the land of Egypt that day. But no, the Lord, he is the Lord. And he can do as he wills with human life. So many other things won't make sense. You'll get to the prophets eventually in this Bible reading plan. And it can be challenging sometimes to read through the prophets because it feels like they take up like half of the Old Testament. And so much of their theme is just that God is very unhappy with Israel. You just read over and over again. You did this grievous, abominable thing before me. I am going to punish you in this way. But don't worry, I will eventually restore you. Over and over again, you read that. And eventually... You're going to wrestle with this and say, why is this over and over and over again in so much of the Old Testament? Why is that such a theme in the Old Testament? Why are so many words devoted to it? Well, the reason is that their covenant God is the Lord of all the universe. And faithlessness against him is a big deal. A big enough deal to dedicate roughly half of the Old Testament to calling out a nation that was not willing to walk in his ways. It does not make sense if you don't sense in your heart that Jesus is Lord.
You also must keep in mind that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, the one that everybody's wanting to come as you read. Otherwise, when the heroes of the Bible do bad things or when they eventually die and everything falls apart, it doesn't make sense, and it's kind of discouraging, right? David rises up and does great things, but then he does this terrible thing with Bathsheba, and her husband winds up murdering him, does stuff to even know what he did to her. Oh, it's terrible. And then he eventually dies, and the kingdom just starts to decline. Why would it work like that? Well, because the deliverer that they're waiting for was not David. Why did Abraham do so many just wrong and dumb things? Because he wasn't the deliverer we were waiting for. Noah, who delivered us through the flood and the ark, eventually gets drunk and does a terrible thing to his sons. He's not the deliverer that we're waiting for. Over and over again, King Josiah rises up to the throne wisely at age eight and eventually leads great reform for Israel, but he dies and they fall back into faithlessness. Like Over and over, you get that pattern. And it's like, why, God? Well, because none of those people are Lord in Christ. The one we're waiting for was still coming. He did come, born of a virgin, lived a perfect life. Jesus Christ is his name, made both Lord and Christ. Church, let your heart be confronted with that truth so that you can be comforted by it. This Jesus, the Jesus that you used to work against, God has made him both Lord and Christ.